You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, church. I invite you to remain standing if you are able for the reading of God's word. Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Verse 27. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the very word of God. You may be seated. So we continue in our sermon series on the supremacy of Christ. And this morning, we open to Luke chapter 5 and ask the question, how is Jesus Christ supreme in biblical counseling? And the question is, what is biblical counseling? What comes to your mind when you think about counseling? Maybe, what about Bob? Oxford Dictionary defines counseling as follows. The provision of assistance and guidance in resolving personal, social, or psychological problems and difficulties, especially by a professional. But what comes to your mind when you think about counseling? Is it a therapist in an olive green turtleneck addressing his client uh, laying down on a couch? What about biblical counseling? What is biblical counseling? Well, a good place to start is Ephesians 4, verse 15. Paul writes, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. We see here in a a single verse the very core of what it means to do biblical counseling. To love one another with the wisdom of God's word. This is what biblical counseling at its core is all about. And the remarkable, wonderful news is that this isn't just reserved for a select few professionals or clergy in the church. This is something that the whole church has been tasked with to engage in 
This is why Paul says in the very next verse, in verse 16, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is a whole body effort. We are called to speak the truth to one another in love so that all of us, the body, grows up and builds itself up in love into Christ, who is our head. But, on a topic like biblical counseling, it's honestly pretty overwhelming. There's so many different directions we can go into. We could talk about models for biblical counseling. We could talk about methodology. What is it that we're actually doing when we're doing biblical counseling? So there's a myriad of different directions we can go into today. But before we do any of that or think about any of that, the best and first thing we need to do is set our gaze toward Christ, the Supreme One. In biblical counseling uh, programs, often there's a time where students will uh, that take time to observe. So they'll observe counselors. Before they actually go and do counseling, they'll take time to watch counseling live. And so that's really the framework and the structure for this morning. We want to pause and stop and take an unhurried look at Jesus Christ, the one from whom all biblical counseling flows. And so that brings us to the burden of this text here in Luke chapter 5. The burden of this text is very simple. Jesus Christ came for sinners. The burden, the aim of this text that Luke has penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that Jesus Christ came for sinners. The outline of this sermon, how we will break this up, will be in three movements. Movement one, tax collectors and sinners. That'll be verses 27 to 29. Second movement, Pharisees and scribes. That'll be verse 30. And third movement, the great physician, verses 31 and 32. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes, and the great physician. So, as a bit of a disclaimer, you might be thinking, okay, how does this passage connect with biblical counseling? The burden of this text is that Jesus Christ came for sinners. However, This truth, this reality, has such massive implications for biblical counseling as we think about Jesus Christ as being supreme in counseling within the church. And so for application, under point three, we'll focus on two ways that we see Jesus Christ as being supreme in counseling, in ministry, in the body of Christ. So without further ado, let's jump into the text. Movement one, tax collectors and sinners. Look again with me at verses 27 and 28. Verse 27. After this, he, that is Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, He rose and followed him. 
here in chapter 5, we see ourselves pretty early on in the onset of Christ's earthly ministry. In chapter 4, in verse 14, Jesus begins his earthly ministry, empowered by the Spirit, and goes into Galilee. In chapter 5, Jesus calls to himself the first of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And here in our passage this morning, we see Jesus call to himself the fourth member of his discipleship entourage, Levi, also known as Matthew, the tax collector. However, what makes this account so miraculous, rather remarkable, is whom Jesus decides to call to himself. Jesus calls Levi the tax collector to come follow him to be his disciple. Tax collectors in the first century in Israel were the scum of the earth. They were the bottom of the barrel. As one commentator notes, they would have been akin to criminals, to thieves. They're on the same level. The reason for such hostility is because tax collectors were an extension of Rome. They would collect taxes from the people, pay off Rome, but they would unjustly increase taxes so that they would have enough to pay off Rome and line their own pockets. And so as New Testament scholar James Edwards states, tax collectors were despised and hated. A Jew who collected taxes was a cause of disgrace to his family, expelled from the synagogue, and disqualified as a judge or witness in court. Tax collectors were tangible reminders of the Roman domination detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. So you get the point. Tax collectors were not liked. And yet, here in our text this morning, we see Jesus intentionally calling out Levi, the tax collector, to come follow after him. And Levi does. He raises up and he leaves everything and he follows after Christ. This then leads to a full-on celebration of Jesus by Levi, the tax collector. Look again with me at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So it's evident. Levi sees who Jesus is. He counts the cost. He leaves everything behind. And in this moment, he's declaring publicly and displaying that Jesus is his greatest treasure. That if he has Jesus, he has everything. And so it's fitting that we see a celebration, this great feast. And if it weren't controversial enough that Jesus calls to himself a tax collector to be his disciple, we see in this next scene, this feast is a large gathering of a bunch of tax collectors. This is not high tea with crumpets. This is more like the mess hall at prison. And so this leads us right into the conflict and our second movement in the text this morning, Pharisees and scribes. Look with me at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled 
at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Given the current climate and relational tension between the religious elite and tax collectors, it's no surprise that we find here in this text these scribes and these Pharisees grumbling and complaining. The Pharisees and scribes were a religious sect of Judaism who prized themselves on stringent adherence to the Mosaic law and purity. They thought of themselves as the standard of righteousness and moral conduct. And anyone who did not measure up to their standard of righteousness were outside, outcasts, vile, despised. And so here we see Jesus and his disciples dining and fellowshipping with the scum of the Pharisaic way of living. They're ticked. They're grumbling in obstinate resistance. Meanwhile, the party continues. And so the disciples are therefore addressed by the Pharisees and scribes. They're asked this question. But notice who answers. Verse 31. Jesus answered them. And I'm so grateful that Jesus here answers the scribes and Pharisees. He opens his mouth and this brings us to movement three, the great physician. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here we see Jesus respond to the grumblings of the religious elite with a stunning metaphor. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus is essentially saying, you, know, you want to know why I spend time with these people whom you think are scum and vile? It's the same reason I'm with people who need healing. They're in need. They're like sick people in need of a physician. Jesus says, and he makes his metaphor explicitly clear. He unpacks this metaphor in verse 32. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the comparison that Jesus is making is really clear. Those who are healthy don't need a doctor. These are like the righteous ones. Those who are sick need a doctor. These are the sinners in need of a savior. However, the reality here is that there is no one spiritually healthy. What Jesus is not saying is, hey, people like the scribes and Pharisees, they're actually good. They're fine. They're righteous. They actually don't need me. I just came for you guys. I came for tax collectors and really bad people. I came for sinners. They're fine. That's not what Jesus is saying. In his metaphor and in his explanation... He's giving an indictment on the Pharisees and scribes. They think 
that they're healthy. They think that they're righteous. But we know, as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so the irony in this scene is that the Pharisees and their scribes, they think they're squeaky clean because of their moral behavior. But they are sick and on the brink of eternal death. And they are actually further off because they don't see their need. Levi, on the other hand, and this company of tax collectors, vile sinners, they're in the clinic. And Jesus, the great physician, is in their midst. So what's the point? This is the point of the text. Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus came for the vile. He came for those who are outcasts. He came for the weak. He came for those in need. He came for those who are too ashamed to look at themselves in the mirror. Jesus Christ came for the unrighteous. He came for the sexually immoral. Jesus came for the addicted. In other words, Jesus came for me and you. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, if you have not read it, I highly recommend it. He hits the nail on the head. That God, he says, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy merely pass, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means that the things about you that make you cringe the most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculated and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on that day when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we have. Jesus Christ's heart is compelled, is drawn forward to sinners, not those who think that they have it all together. And this brings us to our first implication regarding why Jesus Christ is supreme in biblical counseling. Jesus Christ is supreme as we love one another with the wisdom of God's word because he is our chief example. Christ is supreme because he is our chief example. When the church engages in biblical counseling, when we love one another well with the wisdom of God's word, when we seek to build one another up in Christ, as we grow into Christ, our head, we are displaying and depicting and portraying 
the incarnational kind of love that Jesus has for sinners in need. He left the comforts of heaven to draw near to those in need. You might be wondering, well, what about this passage? Isn't this passage talking about ministry to those outside? Isn't this a passage about Jesus ministering to sinners and not ministry of the saints? And if you're wondering that, you're right. This passage is specifically addressing Jesus coming down, coming for sinners, coming for those who are not his yet. (laughs) However, although the church is not sick anymore, because Jesus Christ, our great physician, has healed us and saved us, we still encounter the symptoms of sin's sickness. Although the church is not sick anymore because Jesus, our great physician, has healed us and saved us, we still encounter the symptoms of sin's sickness. For those who are in Christ, sin does not have prevailing victory. Paul says himself in Romans 6.14, for sin will not have dominion over you. And in this life, the church, we will still struggle and wrestle against the flesh and wage war against sin. Sin remains to be fought. And suffering remains to be endured. Suffering in this life has not been fully eradicated either. Since we, along with Paul in Romans 8, we are groaning inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. As we wait for the coming of Christ. Therefore, church, we are certainly in need of this truth. We are certainly in need of the ministry of the word of God in the context of the church. The church does not graduate away from her need for Christ and his word. And if you are tempted to believe otherwise, this will only lead to despair and discouragement. This will only lead to despair and discouragement. There's this way, and I'm, I know this because I'm familiar with it myself, this way of thinking, this way of behaving, that when we come to Christ, he cleanses us, he forgives us, he draws near to us at the start, but then we're tempted to think that we have to keep this thing up on our own. Functionally, we'll, we'll say that he who began a good work in us will complete it to the end, but functionally, we we're really saying He who began a good work at us is sneering with his arms folded, wondering, what are you doing with your life? That's not the heart of Christ. We need Christ now more than ever. Our need for Christ will never wane. This is why Jesus Christ is supreme in biblical counseling, in the ministry of the saints, because we need him constantly, incessantly, and we need to point one another to the Lord of life.
But does Christ merely draw near in in compassion? Is that merely what he does? Look again with me at verse 32. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see that Jesus calls sinners to repentance. He doesn't just come for the sick to be with the sick. He loves us so much so that he's compelled to transform us. Christ not only moves towards sinners, but he moves through sinners to repentance and transformation by his grace, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He called Levi out of the tax booth and Levi dropped everything and followed Christ. This is a beautiful portrait of what repentance looks like. It's making an about turn Abandoning everything else and following after Jesus Christ, the great physician. It's turning away from trusting in false medicines that this world so wants for us to believe and trust in. And it's clinging to the one who gives true and lasting healing, Jesus Christ himself. But how? How does this happen? How does transformation actually happen? How does repentance happen? How does forgiveness of sins happen? We see here in this controversy where Jesus calls Levi, it leads to the next controversy. Questions about fasting. And then the the Pharisees and scribes then question Jesus and the disciples about the Sabbath. Controversy, controversy, controversy. And it's leading to chapter 6, verse 11. But they, the Pharisees and scribes, were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In Luke's account, this is the first inkling of the impending crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's at the cross. It's at the cross where forgiveness of sins and mercy and healing from the great physician is extended to sinners. This is why Paul says in Colossians 2, chapter, uh, verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, Paul, Christ has forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How did this happen? Next phrase. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is why Peter responds to the religious council in Acts chapter 5. Verse 29, by saying, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Okay, Peter, what did the resurrection accomplish? What did hanging Jesus on the cross accomplish? Next verse, 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Church, this is how we're forgiven. This is how we are cleansed. Jesus Christ, the great healer, extends forgiveness and mercy and salvation and redemption at his cross and in his glorious resurrection. This is our only hope. This is our only hope. We have no other hope. If this isn't true, we all need to go home right now. But this is true. And this brings us to our last implication for why Jesus Christ. How is Jesus Christ supreme in biblical counseling? In the ministry of the word together as the church. How is Christ supreme? We saw that Jesus is supreme as our example. And Jesus is supreme as the source of life and healing. In biblical counseling, in the ministry of the word together as we're building one another up in love. Christ-like love is essential, but it is not enough. Sincerity is not enough. Loving people is not enough. The way we love people best is by pointing them to the source of healing, to the source of forgiveness of sins, to the source of transformation and growth and holiness. Biblical counselor Paul Tripp puts the idea in words much better than I can. He says, As sinners, we have a natural bent to turn away from the creator to serve the creation. We turn away from hope in a person to hope in systems, ideas, people, or possessions. Real hope stares us in the face, but we often do not see him. We must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a redeemer. In his power, we find the hope and help we need to defeat the most powerful enemies. Hope rests in the grace of the redeemer. The only real means of lasting change. End quote. Christ is the only hope we have. It would be foolish to discuss and converse over models for biblical counseling and practical measures while we miss the whole point. We're pointing one another not to a system, not to a model. We're pointing one another to Jesus Christ. He is Lord. That's what that means. He is Lord. Therefore, he's the source of change. He's not merely just a means to some end. He's not merely a means to a happy marriage. He's not merely the means to some sort of change and tweak in your life. He is the end. He is the goal. He's the telos. He's the one we are worshiping. He's supreme. He is our only true and lasting joy.
So as we reflect on this passage in Luke, that Jesus Christ came for sinners, that he came for sinners, and that he is persistent toward us, the church, now called saints, those struggling with sin. He came for us. In light of this truth, in light of this reality, that in Christ we have been forgiven and healed, this has massive implications. This means that as we minister to one another in the body of Christ, we do so displaying and portraying the example, the example of what it looks like to condescend to one another in love. Jesus Christ is supreme because he's not only our example, but he is it. He is the source. He is our substance. As we strive to speak the truth in love with one another, may we continue to see Christ, to gaze at Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, to behold Christ. For Christ himself is our great physician. He is our great healer. And he is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. Isaiah 9.6 as we close. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.